0: Good morning. Is that a great song or what? All I have is Christ. It's hard to think of a better summary of the Christian life than that. Well, I have followed the Claris Conference for several years. I've been privileged to be a friend of Ryan Kelly's for several years and have always wanted to come here. So it's a a great honor and a privilege for me to be here to be speaking this morning and this afternoon and to worship like that with each of you. So thanks for the privilege of of listening for a few minutes here. It was a Thursday afternoon, October 15th, 2009. I was working at Crossway Books and I drove in my Chevy Impala to... A local fast food place grabbed some lunch and on the way back I turned on the radio. And there was a bizarre news feed coming, a news bulletin, that a young boy had somehow been trapped inside of this large helium balloon that looks sort of like something out of a a bad 1950s movie, like a kind of a, a strange UFO thing. And it was flying through the air, the news reporter said, in Colorado. And one of the rare times you'll hear on secular radio, the the announcer saying that our our thoughts and our prayers are with this young boy. Emergency medical teams were deployed. Uh, Police squads were being prepared. Uh, Denver International Airport was actually shut down. And National Guard helicopters were in pursuit. Here is a young boy, his name, ironically, flying through the sky. His name was Falcon. (laughs) And the helicopters, the, the news is there. This is all being filmed live, CNN. I'm sure I wasn't watching TV, but I'm sure had a live feed on this and this balloon began to lose helium and the great fear understandably was that this boy would be tragically killed as it crashed to the ground i remember watching video later as the balloon started to descend people were running and trying to break the fall of this balloon to somehow save this boy's life and it turned out there was no boy in there and so there was a manhunt they figured well he must have fallen out somewhere so they began searching through the woods And it turned out, to make a long story short, that Falcon was actually at home, asleep in his attic. His father had a dream of being on a reality TV show, had had done this elaborate hoax, and uh, had called 911. The poor boy got the nickname Balloon Boy. His fame only lasted for about 15 minutes, though I did look this up when I was getting ready to do this, and... Uh, the family is still trying to do a new reality TV show. <laughs> but we could think of other examples like this. I remember as a young boy learning about uh, baby Jessica. Some of you may remember that in 1987. For 58 hours, she was trapped in a well in Texas, only 18 months old. Or more recently, the 33 Miners in Chile it took 69 days for them to be rescued. I think stories like this reveal for us and this is perhaps not what you would expect me to say given the topic I'm going to be speaking on, but I think that it reveals to us that our culture cares deeply about human life. Given the right circumstances, no expense will be spared, no Effort is too great. No obstacle can be in the way of saving a life that is deemed to be of value. And it's a combination of belief and conviction that leads to this response. So when people saw that balloon, or when they heard about uh, the miners, or when they thought about this girl in the well, there's this belief that there is a human life in there. There's a conviction that an innocent human life is valuable and worth saving. And then there is an inevitable response. We must act. There's no calculation of how much will this cost should we do this rescue. It's we need to do everything we can do. No step is too small. No cost is too great. And the the reason I'm bringing this up is because that fundamental question of what is in there determines that response. If the balloon was merely filled with air, or if the human womb is merely filled or occupied with a clump of cells, then no action is needed. Knowing what's inside makes all the difference. Greg Kukola, a friend of mine who runs a ministry called Stand to Reason, sometimes gives this illustration. If any parents are in the room, you can probably identify with a question like this. You may be working in the backyard or in your kitchen, and you hear your kids yell out something like, hey, dad, can I kill this? <laughs> and if you're a wise parent, what will you ask? What is it? So if it's a cockroach, it's a very easy answer. If it's my little brother, (laughs) you need to leave him alone. But here's the serious point. Determining what is in the womb determines how we will treat what is in the womb. So we have to answer the question, what is it? So what is... A human being. Rather than starting with the Bible, the Bible needs to be foundational, but I want to start with science and biology because a lot of people who are in support of abortion rights would say that people like us only believe what we believe because the Bible tells us so. They don't believe the Bible, therefore, they can't get along with our pro life program. Robert P. George, who is a professor at Princeton and a public intellectual, has written a book called Simply Embryo. And he writes, from a purely biological perspective, scientists can identify the point at which a human life begins. The relevant studies are legion. The biological facts are uncontested. The method of analysis applied to the data is universally accepted. Human life begins at conception. As the sperm fertilizes the egg, a new, living, whole, living human organism is created that is not a part of the father. It is not a part of the mother, but it is something new. It's a new entity with its own unique DNA that is living and growing. The late Dr. Jaime Gordon, who founded and directed the Mayo Clinic's world-renowned medical genetics program, gave sworn testimony before Congress on this issue. And what he said is really fascinating. Listen to his wording. He says, I think we can now say that the question of the beginning of life, when life begins, is no longer a question for theological or philosophical dispute. It's an established scientific fact. And listen to what he says, theologians and philosophers may go on to debate the meaning of life or purpose of life, but it's an established fact that all life, including human life, begins at the moment of conception. So science and biology in particular can tell us what life is, but science can't determine value. It can't determine what we do with that life. It can't determine right from wrong. It can tell us what is but it cannot tell us what is ethical. And so here we turn to scripture and we, we heard Owen Strand unpack beautifully last night the distinctive nature of human beings. We are, we can say many things here, but at the very minimum, we want to say that human beings are created in the image, created by God in his image for his glory. All of us, no matter who we are, are created by God in his image for his glory. And those first, the first point and the third point created by God and for his glory applies to everything, right? Rocks, raccoons, llamas, and lobos, the sun, the moon, and the stars. That was my little attempt at contextualization here. (laughs) I I did have to go, is that a real thing or is that just a mascot, but... Everything is created by God for his glory, but only one thing in all of the universe is said to be created in the very image of God. Genesis 1:27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. And this is tied not first and foremost to what we do, but to who we are. By virtue of being created in the image of God, we are designed, each and every one of us, to resemble his character, to relate to each other as male and female, to reflect his glory and to represent his rule. And what gets interesting here is that the Bible doesn't just tell us that as a a nice theological fact, something to memorize in Sunday school, something to check the right box, but it has ethical implications for how we live our life. The Bible teaches that how we treat fellow image bearers says something about what we really believe about the original image, the image maker himself. James 3.9, James critiques the use of the tongue, the use of words to curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Why would he say that? Because of the incongruity of speaking of a fellow image maker or image bearer in such a way that reflects upon what you think of the maker. Or Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. What we say, what we do, how we treat our fellow image bears, reveals what we really think of the image maker. And you think about this, if somebody broke into the Chicago Art Museum and desecrated Van Gogh's paintings, it would be an offense against Van Gogh. It would not merely be the destruction of canvas, but it would be saying something and seeking to harm the creator. So to damage or to desecrate or to try to eliminate God's image is an attack upon the maker himself. And we know this from scripture, right? The sixth commandment, One that everybody, even if an unbeliever would know, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Exodus 23, 7 says that it is wicked to kill the innocent. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17, it's one of the things God says that he hates and abominates our hands that shed innocent blood. So just to do a quick review of where we've come so far, the Bible tells us that human beings are created in God's image. Science tells us that human beings begin living at the moment of conception. And the Bible tells us that it's morally evil to end innocent life. Now the one possible loophole here is whether the Bible itself confirms that second point that life begins at conception. That's what science tells us. But the Bible was written in pre-scientific times. Maybe the Bible teaches that, that you're not a, a full human being until you're born or until you're sufficiently developed. These were days before ultrasound, before medical advances. But if you look at something like Psalm 139, and you listen to the active verbs in a passage like that. Just listen to to David's testimony of, of praise to the Lord, verses 13 through 16. He says to the Lord, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So in the womb is not just a growing, living, whole organism, but in the womb is God Almighty who is doing a work of creation. I want to ask the question how do you persuade someone who doesn't believe this? Say you're talking to a coworker, a family member, a teenage child. What tactics would you take? I mean, one of the things that you could do is you could get a copy of this talk or or Google it and, and get those quotes about embryology. Or go to the latest textbooks and have those on hand. You could arm yourself with scientific facts. And that that might be an appropriate thing to do in certain circumstances. But I think that there is a more fruitful, more natural way that you can weave this into conversations to be a, a winsome, articulate advocate on behalf of life. Think with me for just a moment about the differences between say my, our youngest son, who will be seven months old uh, next week, and a baby that is growing in the womb. What are the differences between my son and an unborn living baby? Well, one would be size, right? My son is, is bigger than the unborn child. Another would be that he's more developmentally advanced. There's a lot of things he can't do. He can't talk yet. He He's very limited in his communication or his fine motor skills, but he's more advanced than the unborn baby. Uh, he's able to, to live and breathe and move outside of the womb where the unborn baby is not. And he's, my son is more independent. He can lay in his crib on his own. Uh, an unborn baby is fully dependent upon his mother. But when you start to think all of these things out, these four categories of differences between the born and the unborn, each of those things that I just mentioned is morally irrelevant for determining the value of that life. None of those things really has anything to do with the nature of what is in the womb. And probably as you listen to that, it's a little bit hard to track with what were those four factors, but a man named Stephen Schwartz, who's a philosopher, and then this has been popularized by Scott Klusendorf, who has a book, I think it's in the bookstore that Crossway published, um, A Case for the Unborn, which I would highly encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, want to grow in knowing more, that's one of the best books you can read. But the two of them have popularized an acronym to help you track through this, and it's called SLED. S-L-E-D. And it's just a quick and easy way to remember these four differences between an unborn child and a born child. So the first one, S, is size. I'll just go through them real quickly. The second is L, level of development. The third is environment. And the fourth is degree of dependency. So you think about size. Does how big you are determine who you are? Of course it doesn't. We know that my oldest child, who's 12, is not more of a human being, not more of a person than our youngest child. And the same is true with someone in the womb. That's S for size, L, level of development. How developed you are does not determine who you are. You don't become more of a human being. You don't become more of a person as you develop through life. Yes, they are developmentally immature, but that does not mean they are not a person or a human being. Environment, the third one. Where you are does not determine who you are. And if if people were to think through the logic of abortion rights does the mere traveling a matter of inches through the birth canal from point A to point B determine or change anything about one's nature where you are does not determine who you are and finally degree of dependency how dependent you are on someone else or something else does not determine who you are. If it did, somebody who was dependent upon a kidney dialysis machine would be less of a human being than somebody who is completely independent. So how big you are, how developed you are, where you are, and how dependent you are, are all interesting differences, but they're all morally irrelevant for determining value and protection. So let's ask the question, we've sort of uh, assumed this already, but just to make it explicit, what is an abortion? Well, the verb in just general terms, abort, means to bring something prematurely to an end. Before it's appointed destination, it it cuts it off, It, it terminates it. So an elective abortion just distinguish from a spontaneous abortion that is not chosen, but an elective abortion in which somebody chooses makes a plan to have an abortion. It's a deliberate surgical procedure where a living human being is removed from a woman's uterus in such a way that the unborn child is killed or its life is terminated. I think a number of years ago, if you were to talk to a well-informed advocate for abortion rights or to an abortionist, they would deny that what they are doing is the taking of a human life. And you may still find that with kind of your, your man on the street, abortion rights supporter, but... I don't think you'll find that from anyone who's well-informed, who's been around a very long time. In fact, there's been a a shift in the pro-choice strategy. Listen to, I've got three quotes here. All three are from women who have been involved in publicly advocating for abortion. The first one's Faye Waddleton. She used to be the president of Planned Parenthood. She says, I think we have deluded ourselves into believing that people don't know that abortion is killing So any pretense that abortion is not killing is a signal of our ambivalence, a signal that we cannot say, yes, it kills a fetus. Or Naomi Wolf, a prominent feminist author, abortion supporter. She said, clinging to a rhetoric about abortion in which there's no life and no death, we entangle our beliefs in a series of self-delusions, fibs, and evasions. We need to admit that the death of a fetus is a real death. Camille Paglia, another feminist and abortion rights supporter, says I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion. Which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. This is wicked, it is evil, but we must admire their candor to not sweep this under the rug. For the last 43 years since Roe versus Wade was legalized in 1973, It has been legal for any woman to have an abortion at any time of her pregnancy for any reason. 80% of Americans, when polled, think that abortion should be outlawed in the third trimester. And most abortions do happen in the first trimester. But the reality is that Roe versus Wade made an exception for the life of the mother, but there was a companion decision that defined that exception to also include health. So not just life, but health. And health was defined not just to include physical health, but social health, economic health, psychological health. So the reality is, for any reason... At any point in a pregnancy, any woman can terminate her pregnancy. And this is where it gets really, really difficult to try to quantify how many abortions have taken place. Because I can give you a number, and it's just going to sound like a number. It's going to sound like a big number, but how, how much is it really? Really? Of all the wars that the United States has been involved with, we've lost the most number of people in the Civil War. 620,000 people died in the Civil War, which is just 1% of the number of unborn lives that we have killed. It's 320 million people in the United States right now. The number of innocent children whose lives have been cut short is 20% of that number. This year, I think it will approach 60 million lives that we have killed, which is about the the population of all of Texas and all of California combined. So each year in the US, we kill 1.37 million unborn children, which is 3,700 every day which is a baby killed every 23 seconds. And in this session this morning, from the beginning till we take the break, 170 lives will have been lost. And I think it's easy for us to, to put this out of our minds. When it comes up in a context like this, we think about it, but uh, it's done quietly. Quietly. It's done by people who look for all intents and purposes like upstanding citizens. It's done in nice, clean offices and clinics where if you were to go in there, they would probably have nice music playing overhead and a copy of People magazine in the rack. Listen to the testimony of a woman from a few years ago named Abby Johnson, who takes us inside one of these clinics, as it were. Uh, Abby Johnson not only worked at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Texas, but was, in fact, the director of it for eight years. Even though she was the director, she'd never actually sat in on an abortion. And she thought just as being the director, she should probably do that one of these days. So listen as I read her testimony. As I took the ultrasound probe in hand and adjusted the settings of the machine, I argued with myself. I don't want to be here. I don't want to take part in an abortion. No, wrong, wrong attitude. I need to psych myself up for this task. I took a deep breath and tried to tune into the music from the radio playing softly in the background. It's a good learning experience. I've never seen an ultrasound guided abortion before, I told myself. Maybe this will help me when I counsel women. I'll learn firsthand about this safer procedure. Perhaps it'll, besides, it'll be over in a few minutes. I could not have imagined how the next 10 minutes would shake the foundation of my values and change the course of my life. My heart sped up, time slowed. I didn't want to look, but I didn't want to stop looking either. I couldn't not watch. I was horrified but fascinated at the same time like a gawker slowing as he travels past some horrific automobile wreck, not wanting to see a mangled body but looking all the same. My eyes flew to the patient's face. Tears flowed from the corners of her eyes. I could see she was in pain. The nurse dabbed the woman's face with a tissue. Just breathe, the nurse gently coached her. Breathe. It's almost over, I whispered. I wanted to stay focused on her, but my eyes shot back to the image on the screen. At first, the baby didn't seem aware of the cannula. The cannula it's the, like a thin tube that they use. It gently probed the baby's side, and for a quick second, I felt relief. Of course, I thought, fetus doesn't feel pain. I'd reassured countless women of this, as I'd been taught by Planned Parenthood. Fetal tissue feels nothing as it's removed. Get a grip, Abby. This is a simple, quick medical procedure. My head was working hard to control my responses, but I couldn't shake an inner disquiet that was quickly mounting to horror as I watched the screen. The next movement was the sudden jerk of a tiny foot as the baby started kicking, as if it were trying to move away from the probing invader. As the cannula pressed its side, the baby began struggling to turn and twist away. It seemed clear to me that it could feel the cannula, and it did not like what it was feeling. And then the doctor's voice broke through, startling me. Beam me up, Scotty, he said lightly, lightheartedly to the nurse. He was telling her to turn on the suction. In an abortion, the suction isn't turned on until the doctor feels he has the cannula in exactly the right place. I had a sudden urge to yell, stop, to shake the woman and say, look at what's happening to your baby, wake up, hurry, stop them. But even as I thought these words, I looked at my own hand holding the probe. I was one of them performing this act. My eyes shot back to the screen again. The, the cannula was already being rotated by the doctor. Now I could see the tiny body violently twisting with it. For the briefest moment, the baby looked as if it were being wrung like a dishcloth, twirled and squeezed. Then it crumpled and began disappearing into the cannula before my eyes. The last thing I saw was the tiny, perfectly formed backbone. Sucked into the tube and then it was gone. And the uterus was empty. Totally empty. Stephen Schwartz Once wrote, suppose in the counter between a doctor and a child, the the child won half the time, something he would have every right to do. Very few doctors would perform abortions. They perform them now because of their absolute power over a small, fragile, helpless victim. Abby Johnson quit her position and is now an advocate for life. I think one of the difficulties for us all is that it feels like we can't do anything about it. We're not Supreme Court justices. We're not presidents of the United States. And it's easy to go on with our lives because we can't We can't see it. I looked last night, by the way, on Google Maps, and within 15 minutes of this church are three abortion clinics, including one at Southwestern that does late-term abortions. But we feel, what, what can we do? What should we do? So I want us in our remaining time here to turn to God's word, to guide us on this. Ephesians 5:11, I think, tells us that we are, at minimum to commit to avoiding our own participation in evil, and at the same time, to do what we can in the spheres in which God has called us to expose evil. So Ephesians 5 verse 11 says, "Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness." but instead expose them. So at the very minimum, commit yourself to living in the light and not participating in this great unfruitful work of darkness that stains not only our land, but lands across the world. And then we are commanded by God to expose them to do what we can to shine the light on this reality that this is taking place. This is taking place in our neighborhoods and in our cities. So the first point, avoid evil and expose evil. The second is seek to rescue those who are potential victims of this great evil. Proverbs 24, verses 11 through 12 says that we are to rescue those who are being taken away to death. We are to hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. And then a convicting verse, verse 12 says, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will not he repay man according To his works. So, in the various streams of life and vocations that God has given you, not only should we avoid evil, not only should we try to expose this evil, but we should try to rescue these little ones being carried off to slaughter and to death. And then the third point, I think, from God's word is that we should all repent and receive the gift of forgiveness. I don't know 99% of you in this room. I don't know your past, but it would be unusual in a room of this size that there would not be some who have in their past had some relationship with abortion. Whether that's encouraging a girlfriend years ago, encouraging a daughter to have an abortion, Having an abortion yourself, knowing that an abortion was going to take place but not saying anything or doing anything. Or, or perhaps the more likely majority would be those who say, I, I'm, I'm not guilty of anything regarding abortion. Actually, it's not, not on my radar screen. I don't think about it much, which is itself part of the problem. So, if you're in any of those categories, I just want to say that the Lord opens wide his arms to you through the gift of the cross of his Son. The cross is bigger than all of our sins, than all of our sins of action and negligence. Think of the hymn as well with my soul, the sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So at a very practical level, what can you do? What should you do about abortion? besides what I've already mentioned about avoiding evil and exposing evil and seeking to rescue those? And the short answer is that I don't know. I have some ideas, but I don't know what you should do. And I would humbly suggest that you ask the Lord what he would have you do. For some of you, it may mean that you are able to give financially. You may want to go out and, and make yourself acquainted with the materials from CareNet, get to know them, and consider whether some of your giving can go towards a ministry like that. For some of you, it may be a calling towards public advocacy to get training in these issues and the scientific aspects and the public policy aspects. You might go to a website like Abort73. Dot com and learn more and get equipped or pick up Scott Klusendorf's book. For some of you, you may be gifted and have the desire for counseling young women who are abused or confused or not sure what to do. For some of you, it may mean a, a burden and a desire to start a pro-life ministry in your church where you go to one of these abortion clinics and engage in prayer and evangelism there's a great website out of louisville speak for the unborn f-o-r not the number four speak for the unborn.com that gives you a whole gospel-centered perspective on how to do this for some of you it may mean opening up your home for foster care or for adoption i will say many in the church pray today that abortion would end And if abortion were to be eliminated in the United States, the number of families willing to adopt must increase exponentially. It may mean using the gifts that God has given you to write poetry on this issue, to write songs on this issue, to become a filmmaker who does a a film that helps or, or to write a song. It may mean making a spiritual investment that no one will ever see including fasting and praying for the unborn. And if you want uh, a tool on praying about this issue, uh, the Colson Center, colsoncenter.org slash 21 days has a guide for how you can pray about crisis pregnancy centers and about the unborn and about um, our lawmakers. And I've been convicted on this point myself Do my prayers reflect my convictions about the unborn? Or am I only praying for myself and my own needs and it just never seems to come up? So I don't know what the Lord might be calling you to do, but I do believe that in action, not ever praying, not ever seeking to put into practice any of these things that can Lesson, abortion is not a biblically permissible option for us. If we really believe what Jesus tells us, that we are to love the Lord, the, the, our, our creator, our maker, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we are really to love our neighbor as ourselves, we cannot be indifferent to abortion. I want to close with a, a quote from Frederica Matthews, Green, who talks a little bit about the unpopularity of the pro-life movement, and how she thinks history will one day judge our generation. She says, the pro-life cause is perennially unpopular, and pro-lifers get used to being misrepresented and wrongly accused. There are only a limited number of people who are going to be brave enough to stand up on the side of an unpopular cause. But sometimes a cause is so urgent, is so dramatically clear that it's worth it. What cause could be more outrageous than violence? Fatal violence against the most helpless members of our human community. If that doesn't move us, how hard are our hearts? If that doesn't move us, what will ever move us? In time, she says, it's going to be impossible to deny that abortion is violence against children. Future generations, as they look back, are not necessarily going to go easy on ours. Our bland acceptance of abortion is not going to look like an understandable goof. In fact, the kind of hatred that people now level at Nazis and slave owners may well fall upon our era. Future generations can accurately say it's not like they didn't know. They can say, after all, they had sonograms. They may consider this bloodshed to be a form of genocide. They might judge our generation to be monsters. One day, the tide is going to turn. With that Supreme Court decision 43 years ago, one of the sides in the abortion debate won the day. But sooner or later, that day will end. No generation can rule from the grave. The time is coming when a younger generation will sit in judgment on ours and they are not obligated to be kind. I want to close in prayer and I want to do something a little unusual as I do. And that is to read a a prayer from John Piper from his book Hunger for God. As I read this, I want this to be a genuine prayer from my heart and would ask that you pray in your spirit with me. Oh, Lord, we are not able in ourselves to win this battle. We are not able to change hearts or minds. We are not able to change worldviews and transform culture and save 1.6 million children. We are not able to reform the judiciary and or embolden the legislature, or mobilize the slumbering population. We are not able to heal the endless wounds of godless ideologies and their bloody deeds, but oh God, you are able. And we turn from reliance on ourselves to you. And we cry out to you and plead that for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory, and for the advancement of your saving purpose in the world, and for the demonstration of your wisdom and your power and your authority over all things, and for the sway of your truth and the relief of the poor and the helpless. Act, O God. This much we hunger for the revelation of your power. With all our thinking and all our writing and all our doing, we pray and we fast. Come. Manifest your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.